Good evening. Welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight, and our topic is Able to Save. We're talking tonight about the nature and purpose of the first coming, especially Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, people who know practically nothing about Christianity still know the idea that Jesus died on the cross. So that's a very widely known fact. But why he did that is a matter of uh, great speculation, confusion, and so on. One of the main things being that a lot of people think that since Jesus was here to take away the sins of the world, it, it must have been by his death that he did that. It must have been his death that took away our sins. And that had something to do with his relationship with the Father or something like that. And Swedenborg has quite a different view. And so uh, that's what we're going to be getting into tonight, just another light topic. And so if you'd like to join me for an opening prayer, please do, good friends. Mm -hmm. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the Word made flesh. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us together in your name. We pray for your presence among us as we open the pages of your word, seeking to know you. What was the purpose of your life? What was the purpose of your death? Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Sending love to those of you who are out there online and getting the audio and on the phone and here in the room. And I had an announcement, uh, two announcements. Uh, one is that we won't be having Bible study next week, May 23rd. There's a local event going on, and there's various stuff, and, and our beloved cameraman's going to be out of town. No, no blame, uh, no shame, but uh, uh, so we won't be having an episode next week. And on a more serious note, uh, after mid-June of this year, there'll be no more new episodes of the Spirit and Life Bible Study for the foreseeable future. I have some editing work in my day job that needs doing, uh, which will take me about four and a half years, and it's going to be all hands on deck uh, for that. And so it's not an easy decision. I don't take it lightly, uh, but I, I think this, this needs to happen. So our final episode will be on June 13th, 2018. And uh, I plan to keep the existing 300-plus episodes available for viewing. Um, and who knows what the future holds. If I actually get this job done, then there will be life after this project for me, and all kinds of things will be possible then. But in the short run, it'll involve some sacrifices. So, uh, so let's take a look, friends, at this topic. This is, I talked last time about the five topics of the Bible study. This is actually topic number two, the nature and purpose of the first coming, and especially Jesus' death on the cross. What was going on there? Let's start with some really basic scriptures about this. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 here. Are we okay? Oh, sorry. Does he know where he's going? Okay. Good. Oh. Great. Our dear reader was momentarily distracted. No, momentarily. <laughs> where are we, my friend? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. This is the Christmas story almost before the Christmas story, but just getting into the Christmas story. And this is when an angel was announcing to Joseph what was going on. And 121 is a crucial statement here. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, he will save his people from their sins. Really, really basic idea of what Jesus was doing in this world, saving his people. It raises the question, who are his people, our only some people his people, or is everybody his people? Um, and how is he going to do this? How is he going to save his people? And interestingly, some people feel uh, that Jesus would come into the world to save people from original sin, like the sin of Adam at the beginning of time or something. But this passage kind of contradicts that a little bit, that he will save his people from not somebody else's sin at the beginning of time, but from their sins, as if people have their own sins. We did a whole Bible study on this a while ago. And so it's interesting that you could be his people and still have sins, right? 
It implies mm -hmm. that because he's going to save his people from their sins. So his people may still have sins, but the Lord can rescue you from that. And so how is he going to do that exactly? And let's look at another really basic scripture in John chapter 1. So go ahead a few gospels and get to John. There, John chapter 1. Verse 29, this is when John sees Jesus coming. And what does he say when he, he first sees him there? The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay. Now, dear reader, I have a linguistic question for you. Yes. Did you say takes away the sin of the world? That's what I said. What part of speech is that? What can you tell me about that? Uh, let's see. Well, that's a present. That's a verb. It's a verb. It's a present tense verb. It's a present tense verb. Takes. The Greek present tense verb can also mean is taking or something, but it has an ongoing feeling in, in the original Greek. It didn't say that he has taken away or will take away. It's just he's the one who takes away the sin of the world. Um, mm -hmm. And so there again, okay, he takes away the sin of the world, but how does he do that? Is he going to do that all at once? Is his death going to do that? How is he going to take away the sin of the world, the, the Lamb of God? Uh, so hold that present tense in mind. And uh, I want to summarize rather briefly, briefly some great things that Swedenborg says about um, what Jesus was doing here in this world. He points us to Ezekiel chapter 4, okay? So you go to the middle of your Bible, you drop into somewhere like the Psalms, head to the right through Isaiah and Jeremiah, and you get to Ezekiel. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 4, where there's a rather bizarre story. Now, this is the Old Testament. What would this have to do with what Jesus was doing? Let's have a look at what we've got in these first six verses of Ezekiel chapter 4. These are instructions from God to Ezekiel, who is a prophet, man of God. You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Oh, weird. So God is bending the heavens and telling this person, hey, take a clay tablet and make an image of Jerusalem on there. Okay, good. Go on. Lay siege against it. Do what? Against a clay tablet? Lay mm -hmm. siege against a clay tablet? Okay. Build a siege wall against it and heap up a mound against it. Weird. Set camps against it also and place battering rams against it all Weird. around. Hmm. Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Now, this is, I wonder what Ezekiel thought of these instructions. So he has to take a clay tablet and then very seriously lay siege to this image of Jerusalem on a clay tablet. And then he's supposed to take this iron, you know, just something you have lying around the kitchen, and stick it between himself and the city. Go on. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. Uh, and why would he do this? This will be a sign to the house of Israel. This will be a sign. Okay, this will be a sign. Uh, some people refer to this as a kind of street theater that the prophets would do, where they would go out in public and they would do, and everybody would wonder, what is Ezekiel doing? What's he doing? You know, he's got these, it looks out of his mind. You know, he's, he's laying siege to this little tablet and building siege walls and mounds against it and all that. But they're wondering, what, what's he doing? This is a sign to the house of Israel. Okay, what's the next easy instruction? Lie also on your left side. Oh, and, why not? Yep. And lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. I don't know how you do that, but go on. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. Oh, you will bear their iniquity. Huh. So, lay the, so he's supposed to lie down on his left side. Okay, go on. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, 390 days. Oh, that was rather longer than I was thinking. I was hoping maybe the weekend. He's supposed to lie on his left side for 390 days because there's 390 years that they've been committing these iniquities. Hmm. Go on. 
so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Okay, think about that. For You'll bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Go on. In and other words, what does bear mean there? Doesn't it mean that he will kind of wear it? He will enact it or something, right? Uh, go on. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I imagine after 390 days on one side, you're about ready to go on the <laughs> other side. So then he lies on his right side for 40 days. Go on. I have laid on you a day for each year. Therefore, you shall... Yes, okay. And we can... Uh, let's down. skip down to... Um, uh, he explains in verses 16 and 17 a little bit about this. He also tell, tells him to make food with disgusting ingredients and so on. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety and shall drink water by measure and with dread that they may lack bread and water and be dis dismayed with one another and waste away because of their iniquity. Okay, so the people are going to waste away because of their iniquity, but the prophet just bore their iniquity a few verses before, and yet their iniquity went nowhere. See what I'm saying? He bore their iniquity at the beginning of the chapter, and yet they still had their iniquity at the end. It didn't take it away. It didn't take it away because they still had it, uh, and a lot of the prophets did stuff like this. Isaiah went barefoot for three, three and a half years or something. You know, they, they did various different strange things. Uh, and the idea was to be a representative, to show, to demonstrate in some sort of visual image, here's what's going on. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to be starving. You know, Jerusalem, there will be a siege against Jerusalem. I'm showing you by this little pre-enactment or something, but this is what's sure. going to happen. And so he is bearing their iniquity for 390 days on one side and then bearing the other for 40 days on the other side, but it doesn't take away the iniquity. It just reveals it. So when you say takes away the sins of the world, one of the things, I don't have passages for you here, but there are lots of them that show, oh, we'll have one pretty soon uh, in Luke 13, I think, uh, that Jesus was a prophet. Uh, Swedenborg calls him the greatest prophet. And part of what he was doing in this world, people have misunderstood. They thought, oh, well, hey, he took, he's taking away the sins of the world. He's bearing our iniquities, it says in Isaiah 53. So uh, therefore, he must be taking them just away, poof, gone, uh, by what he does in his life, and then there will be no more sin. So let me ask you, just a thought experiment, good friends. Um, do you think that sin in our world, let's say even, let's just narrow it down a little bit, even within Christianity, would you say that sin is so rare that the last sin occurred thousands of years ago and no one can remember what it looks like? It's just such a distant memory when people used to sin. Is that where we are? Because I don't think that's where we are. I, 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 I think it's a little more present than that, a little more vivid than that. So you'd say, well, what did the Lord do? Well, he showed it to us by his life, by his death. Part of the reason for his death was that he was demonstrating, Swedenborg says, how people were treating the word. Everything that happened to him, every little detail, give him some vinegar, crown of thorns, all the, you know, the robe that he wore, all, all that stuff was a picture of what was being done to the Word. He made it visible. That's one sense in which he carried that. It didn't take it away. He just said, here it is. Ezekiel didn't take it away. He just said, here's how you look to me. You know, you look like people who are about to go into captivity because you're not following the Lord. And, and uh, didn't take the iniquity away, but, but carried them as a prophet. So that's one of the things that was going on in uh, Jesus' um, life and death. All right, another question that comes up a lot is the idea. Let's go to some passages in the New Testament here. So if you get to, let's say, back to the Gospel of John there and turn to the right, I want to take you back to Ephesians. So you go through Acts, 
Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. Okay, this is Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Chapter 2, we're just going to dive in. Paul's always in mid-sentence. I don't think he took a breath for 40 years. And uh, so in 2 verse 15, what do we read there? Having abolished... This is talking about Christ Jesus, who was just mentioned a couple of verses before. Yep. Having abolished in his flesh the, enim the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Yes, and I don't have time to go into what the two are and all that sort of stuff, but I wanted you to read. There are verses that say things like, that w might really give you the sense, oh, Jesus abolished in his flesh the law of commandments. See, some people believe that what Jesus did by coming was that there were these Old Testament commandments, the Ten Commandments, but when Jesus came into the world, he abolished that when he was here in the flesh, you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to obey the Ten Commandments anymore because Jesus did that for you. We're, it's a hard law. We can't follow it. We're all born in sin. Nothing we can do. And um, so Jesus just kindly took care of that for us. Uh, let's read one more scripture. Let's turn to the left and go back to Romans, which is before you get to Acts. Romans 3, 28, another very vital verse on these topics. Again, it's Paul. This time he's writing to the Romans. And he's talking about what justifies us, what makes us righteous. And he has this long disquisition. We've done other Bible studies on it before. But 3.28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, this is such a big verse. This is just thumped, you know, thundered through the ages when None other than Martin Luther was creating his new translation of the Bible into the vernacular as he moved away from Catholicism. In this verse, he felt the need to add the German word allein, faith alone. A man is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. And uh, he felt that that was, was necessary in there. Um, but, so... You might think from passages like that, oh, well, see, we're justified by faith. All you've got to do is believe in Jesus. You don't need to follow the Ten Commandments anymore. Believe in Jesus. That's what takes away your sins, knowing that he died on the cross. Think about him. Picture him. Picture what he went through. You're, you're good. You know, e even if you're an evil person, the cloak of his merit will surround you, and that's what God the Father will see, and you'll, you'll be all right. We talked last time about how the fact that God the Father and he are not separate, so it doesn't really work that way. But uh, to cut to the chase on these passages, uh, what Swedenborg says about these is that there were many different things that were meant by the law. The law, yes, the law is sometimes used in Scripture to mean the Ten Commandments. It's sometimes used to mean the 613 ordinances and statutes of the ancient Judaic law, you know, not mixing milk and meat and, and dietary laws and various different sacrifices and so six on, which is different than the ten, 10 commandments so the 613 are different and sometimes the law just means the whole means all the five books of Moses sometimes it means the entire old testament so it's used in different ways at different times and uh how swedenborg would explain both of those passages uh is that what it's talking about there is those 613 Old Testament ordinances and that it's not by the doing of those 613 things. Like, oh, I dieted correctly or I got ceremonial unclean. So I went home and I did this and I washed and now you know, I'm following those rules so I'm now justified. And the reason Paul is particularly hard on this point is that Paul himself followed all those things to the letter and yet was a murderous person who had a problem with Jesus, and Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So, you know, they didn't justify him. And, and, uh, but by misunderstanding that or misapplying it to mean that it's just faith that the Lord, you know, saved you on the cross and you don't have to follow the Ten Commandments, that's, that has pretty serious consequences. There's a difference between saying, 
I'm not going to go through the Jewish rite of this or that, or saying I'm not going to obey the commandment not to kill people. Or so you know, those are those are quite different animals. And let me show you some things here. Let's turn back to the left to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark 15. Well-known moment in the crucifixion here. 15. Let's read verses 37 and 38. This is Jesus on the cross. Then the veil of the temple was torn oh, in two. Start at 37, if you will. Yeah, that's sorry. Good. No problem. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the veil of the temple was what stood, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments, was behind that veil. It's rather an absurd thought, but if Jesus came here to get rid of the Ten Commandments, why would that veil be torn from top to bottom? Why wouldn't the Ten Commandments just blow up or something? You know, why not have the Ark of the Covenant disappear if that's what he was doing? What happened instead was that they would reveal, they were more visible, the Ten Commandments were more visible afterward than before. So that's a very interesting point to me. Uh, turn to the right and go through John and Acts. I want to get back to Romans where we were there a second ago. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. And in the interest of time, let's just read verses 3 and 4 in Romans 8. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, uh -huh. that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Yeah, so it doesn't say that he did all this so that we didn't have to do anything about the law. It was so that in the language of the Old King James, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Uh, he wanted that law more inward in us. And you can see this quite clearly in Hebrews. So turn to the right, go about halfway back to the book of Revelation, and hopefully you'll find the Hebrews is fairly large back there. And Hebrews 8, verses 8 to 10. Now, this is just a straight quote from Jeremiah 31, but it's very interesting that Paul or whoever wrote the <coughs> Hebrews repeats it here. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Hmm, new covenant. Almost sometimes, some translations in certain passages like this even say New Testament because there's a relationship between a testament and a covenant. So a new covenant. So the Lord's going to make a new covenant. It's predicted in Jeremiah and repeated in the New Testament. How will that work? Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Okay, so this is not like the covenant that the Lord made with the children of Israel with the Ten Commandments, but why not? It says because they didn't keep it. A covenant is a two-party agreement. If one party breaks it, then it's broken. It, it only takes one person to break it. And then he explains, what is this new covenant in verse 10? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those de days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind oh. mm -hmm. and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Yes. So it's the same as that tearing of the veil from top to bottom, isn't it? That the Ten Commandments are now going to be more internal. They haven't gone anywhere. They're going to be written in the heart. Uh, the Lord didn't come into the world just to have sort of a token obedience in some external way to it, but to really write it in our hearts. So the only thing that's new about the new covenant is uh, that where it is. It's, it's going to be in our hearts, written on our hearts. And hey, he's, he didn't say, I'm going to get rid of all law or something. He said, I'm going to put my laws 
in your mind and write them on your heart, and that's how I'll be your God and you'll be my people, he says. And there's, I'm just thinking there's somewhere, I didn't line up this passage ahead of time, but isn't it in 1st, 2nd John back here? Um, look at uh, verse 5 in the second epistle to John, which is right back by the book of Revelation there. Verse 5. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. The commandment to love one another has not gone anywhere. That is still the law. And Jesus talks a lot about, doesn't he say, is it Matthew 15, about all the evils that come out of the human mouth? Is not what, is what comes from your heart. You know, it's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. It's all the bad things that come out. And that list is very much like the Ten Commandments. In Romans 13, he says that all these different commandments are summed up in love and so on. Uh, if you really look at it and ask yourself, you'll see the, oh, the Ten Commandments didn't go anywhere. While we're up here in 1 John, let's just turn to the left and go to 2 Peter, which should be the next thing in sequence right to the left there. 2 Peter 2, 21. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. So this is Peter after Jesus' death and resurrection, he's saying, hey, the Holy Commandment is still in force, and uh, if you start keeping it, you should keep keeping it because it's better to keep keeping it than it is to sort of know it and then walk away from it because that's, that's bad. The Holy Commandment is very important. There are tons of passages like this. I just picked out a few. But so to try to square these different teachings with each other, uh, I think Swedenborg's right on the money that this is, these passages that say that Jesus did away with the laws when he was in this world is that, yes, that's right. Christians no longer follow the milk and meat rules or do the three festivals, of, you know, or the festival of booths and, or sacrifice pigeons and use the blood on the thumb and all that, you know. Uh, yes, not that. But the Ten Commandments went nowhere. That, that they're still in force. They're still very much part of it. Okay, so what was the Lord doing exactly? Well, uh, a key point that I want to get across tonight if I can. Uh, Swedenborg says this interesting thing. The first time I read it, I thought, what? It just sounds like gobbledygook. I don't get it. But as I sat with it, it started to make more and more sense. He said that Jesus' death was not an act of redemption. It was an act of glorification. Not an act of redemption, act of glorification. The theory is that Jesus' death on the cross is what redeemed us from hell. And part of the theory seems to go, I know this may be exaggerated and painted with too broad a brush as usual, but uh, the idea is that uh, God the Father was angry with us, really, really mad, and, but Jesus was so good and so pious and did everything right, and then he dies on the cross, and when God sees him bleeding, then that took away the sins. It took away God's anger and said, okay, okay, okay. As long as people believe in Jesus and the great thing that he did, I'll take away your sin. And that's what makes us righteous. That's the faith apart from the works of the law. And so that's what, what does it for us. The problem with that is that it makes God the Father sort of a monster. It makes God the Father and Jesus two separate people. It's kind of horrific. Uh, you know, even bad parents don't do stuff like that to their kids, do they? Like, uh, what, what kind of father enjoys the sacrifice of his son and thinks, oh, now I feel much better, you know, or something. Uh, it's sort of horrendous. So, uh, so what was going on there? Uh, Swedenborg says that Jesus came into this world for two reasons. One was to redeem the human race, you know, to save us from our sins, and to do that he had to gain power over the hell. So he had to deal with evil. And part of the reason for his being born half human, half divine, was that that gave him access to the hells, which God, as he is in himself, never would have had. You know, by being half human, he was able to get places that God, as he is in himself, couldn't get and deal with that evil. 
But Swedenborg says that that redemption, that pushing hell back, dealing with the hells, was done during Jesus' life, not during his death. And he actually goes so far, Swedenborg goes so far as to say that getting this one wrong, uh, this along with three persons in the divine Godhead, has just ruined Christianity from when it, like getting this one wrong is really, 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 really bad. Um, so what about glorification? What does that mean? Glorification is the process at the same time as Jesus was dealing with all this hell, his human side, his human manifestation, that little child that was just born in the world just like us and grew up just like us, went through teething and teens and everything we go through, uh, that human side was getting more and more divine over time, a process called glorification. Uh, the glorification was the making glorious of his outer self, of his human manifestation. And what the cross was all about, says Swedenborg, was not redemption. It wasn't dealing with hell. The cross was about his final glorification of his human so that the that human body disappeared in the tomb. The whole thing became divine. Uh, and so going through that trial was what did that to him. So let's examine this. We've got a few scriptures to look at here. Let's examine this. Let's go to Luke so turn to the left and go back to the Gospel of Luke, good friends. Let's go to Luke 13, and we'll see a mention, as I mentioned before, of Jesus being a prophet. There's this wonderful little vignette, and we did a whole Bible study about this at some point. 13, 31 to 33. So Jesus is doing his thing, and Herod was this king, and people come from Herod to tell Jesus a message. On that very day... Some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Herod wants to kill you. Norman hum normal human being might have been shaken by this statement that the person who has authority and power of life and death over you in that part of the world wants to kill you. And what is Jesus' response? And he said to them, Go tell that fox. Now that was not a normal term of honor and obeisance. <laughs> go tell that fox, you know, here's my reply. Go tell that fox. Now, what does he say? Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Whoa. Now, wait. That's a very huge thing he said right there. So people come and tell him, hey, Herod wants to kill you. And so he says, okay, great. Let's have a conversation about my death because I'm going to tell you how it's going to work. Here's how it's going to work. Today and tomorrow, he's speaking somewhat metaphorically the way we do sometimes. Today and tomorrow, I'm, what am I doing? Cast out demons to, and perform cures. Cast out demons, redemption, perform cures. Cast out demons and perform. Today and tomorrow, I'm casting out demons and performing cures. And then what am I doing on day three? Be perfected. On the third day, I'm going to be perfected. Oh, well, maybe he didn't really mean the crucifixion. He, may, he really, literally meant on Saturday or something. You know, what, what does he mean? Well, let's look at the next verse and see whether we can determine that. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Ah, he called himself a prophet, right? He said, I'm a prophet and it's not, so, hey, Herod wants to kill you. He's saying, oh, you want to know about my death? I'll lay it all out for you. This is how it's going to work. I'm going to do this stuff here. Then I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to get killed, and that's going to perfect me. That's the third day. And the two days, I'm casting out demons and performing cures. So, all right, it might be a little subtle, but I think there's actually something powerful under the hood there to say that redemption happened on day one and two, the way he's speaking metaphorically. And glorification was his perfect. Day three was not about casting out demons. He didn't say, I'm going to cast out demons on day three when I go to Jerusalem and I die there. Didn't say that. He said, day three is I'm going to be perfected on day three. I'm casting out demons on days one and two. That's before. Redemption is before the glorification. All right. Now, maybe that's not strong enough by itself. You need more. I know. You're very demanding, good friends. <laughs> Let's look at uh, Luke 24. 
Luke 24. There's the road to Emmaus story, the favorite story of mine. And these two people are walking along. It's right after the crucifixion. They're terribly sad because everything just shocked them to no end. They thought the Lord was going to do all this great stuff and, and, and instead something completely different happened. They thought, in fact, look at verse 21 in Luke, 20, Luke 24. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Yes. So they assumed that he had not redeemed Israel. He died instead. So the redemption never happened. You know, we thought he was going to redeem Israel, meaning get us free of the Romans, make us more politically powerful or something like that. He would redeem us. Uh, but uh, no. Uh, and so, and he, it's wonderful. I wish we had time to read the whole thing because he plays dumb. He's walking with them. They don't recognize him. It's after the resurrection. They don't recognize Jesus walking along with them. Uh, and he plays dumb. And, it's, you know, he says, why are you all sad? And they say, well, because of everything that's happened. And he says, what? Why? What happened? <laughs> and then they say, are you the only stranger? You don't know what's going on? And they tell him the whole story. And so they think they're filling him in on everything. And then his response totally blindsides them in verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Ah, you see, part of the reason I'm reading that now is that the suffering these things, because they've just been talking about the crucifixion and that he disappeared from the tomb. And so he says, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. See, that was glorification. The suffering was about glorification. You know, that's separate from the redemption. Okay, but I got something even better than that. I know you're demanding. We're going to look at it. Look at John. Turn to the right. John chapter 12. Boy, uh, about half the Gospel of John is the last week of Jesus' life. It's just an unbelievable amount of page real estate taken to that last week. And so here's Jesus coming down the home stretch. And I just wanted to quickly dip into these three verses. Look at 1231. What does Jesus say? Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Okay, so now is the judgment. This is before his crucifixion, but he says now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Okay, it's future tense. Maybe it's still going to happen when he dies. Let's look at 14, verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Okay, now he is coming. This is sort of, okay, maybe he's here now. Look at 16, verses 8 to 11. And when he he's has talking come, about the comforter coming someday. Okay. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Is judged. Is judged. So some of these other things are in the future, but the ruler of this world is judged. Okay, now look at 1633. This is Jesus again. What does he say? These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Yes, you will. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Wait, does he mean I'm going to overcome the world when I die on the cross? Mm. Oh, he hasn't died on the cross yet, but he's already saying, I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. The prince of this world and so on, meaning evil and so on. He's already overcome the world. And if you needed any more proof, and I know you're hungry for proof, good things. look at 17 verses 4 and 5. What does Jesus say there? I have glorified He's, you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He's not dead yet, and he says he's finished the work. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. I finished it. He already finished it. I have overcome. He finished the redemption before he even got to the cross, before he even got to the Garden of Gethsemane. He fin I have finished the work that you gave me to do, and now what's going to happen in verse 5? 
And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So, redemption. I finished the work you gave me to do. Now we're going to do the glorification. So, I think there's some scriptural evidence to back up what Swedenborg is talking about, this interesting distinction between redemption and glorification. And so part of the point being, if you understand that the glorification was to uh, make him fully divine so that he would have access to us forever, because that's what our trials do. And that's our next topic we need to talk about. Let's talk about temptations briefly. Okay, let's go back to Hebrews. So turn to the right and go through Acts and the epistles, various things that begin with T, and you get to the Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. This is again, uh, well, let's start at 16, 16, 17, 18. This is about Jesus. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, Wait. but oh. am I in the wrong place? Oh, okay, yeah, you might be in the right place. Hmm. Hebrews. It reads very differently in the old King James, 2.16. 2.16. Okay, yep, okay. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So interesting. Very different from the old King James there. In old King James, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, which to me makes more sense with the next verse, but let's just carry on. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren. See, that means like was. <coughs> His human, he was made like us. Why was he made like us? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Yes. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. Okay, very important statement. So you see in verse 18 that... Because he suffered and went through being tempted, meaning he went through temptations, meaning spiritual crises or trials, because he went through temptations, he is able, crucial word, to help those who are being tempted. It doesn't say that he did away with temptation so nobody ever had to go through it again. We have sins, and we are going to go through temptation. They're going to bring us through temptation. But it says he's able to help us when we're going through temptation because he went through it. That's why he took on him not the nature of angels but the nature of Abraham, like being just a regular human being, because the way the divine is in and of itself, he cannot be tempted. Take a squirt gun and shoot it at the sun. Do, do you have any impact on the sun? It, it has no impact on it. The divine cannot be affected by temptation. But Jesus, because he was half human, was able to go through that temptation. And then he suffered being tempted, and therefore he is able to help those who are tempted. It doesn't say you won't go through temptation. It just means that he was able. A little bit like that phrase, able to save. Hmm. Hope we get to that sometime tonight able to save. He's able to help those who are going through temptation. And turn to the right from Hebrews, you get to James, and I want to go right to James chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, which makes a very, very strange counterintuitive statement. James 1, 12 and 13. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. I doubt it. I think it feels horrible. Really? Blessed is the person who endures temptation? Go on. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Uh -huh. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. The divine as it is in itself cannot be tempted by evil. There's nothing, there's no purchase. It just says there's no way for it to have the slightest effect. It's the complete opposite of evil. It's just infinite love, infinite wisdom. It's completely not affected by it. So God cannot be tempted by evil. So how was Jesus tempted? Was because he had a divine you know, soul that he, you know, that he inherited that was God himself in there, 
and he had this human part that was being added on in the world, and that allowed him to be tempted. So very important. Another thing that happened in all this, I don't know whether we'll be able to see this in these passages, but let's give it a try. Let's go to the middle of your Bible again. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 53. This comes out differently in different translations. 53 verse 12. The whole of 53 is very much about what Jesus went through on the cross. Prophecies in the Old Testament about what he would go through. There's a particular point I wanted to point to here. 53 verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. Okay, that's the important phrase. He poured out his soul unto death. Go on. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Yes, that's right. Again, a much misunderstood phrase, but when you understand it in that mode of the prophet, he, he revealed what was going on. He carried it in himself. He suffered for it. And that was to be able to make intercession for transgressors. So poured out his soul to death is a term uh, in the Hebrew that means emptied. He emptied himself out. And the Latin word for empty, is there a term for emptying in Latin? Ex in anition. Ex in anition, our learned reader. <laughs> That's why she gets the big money. Ex in anition, we didn't even rehearse this. Ex in anition means emptying out. The ex means out, and the inon means empty, just like inane. It means empty-headed or something, you know. Exonition is emptying out. And part of what Jesus did in this world, so he's, okay, you're, you've got a divine inner self and a human outer self. What are you going to do? How do you resolve that situation? What you need to do is empty out that outer self. It gets so he poured out his soul unto death. You know, he emptied, emptied out the humanness. Keep dumping it out, dumping it out, make room for that divineness. It was so useful to him to have the human part because that allowed him to be tempted so that he can help us be tempted, but he was also showing us how to dump that out and have the divine come in and replace it. Here's another one. Uh, let's go to the um, New Testament to Matthew 27. Jumping all over the place tonight, my dear and patient friends. 27... Uh, this is a moment of final emptying out, the glorification that happened on the cross. 27, verse 46, what does Jesus say? And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, we did a whole Bible study on that at one point, Psalm 22, he's quoting there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the final things he went through with that human part was this sense of total abandonment. It was this emptying out, this temptation. So he's just experiencing that, that humanness and, and dumping it out. And pretty soon, you know, he's completely one with the divine. Um, yes, let's turn to the right and go to the epistles. Uh, we'll go through Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, I want to get to. Philippians 2, verse 7. Again, you won't uh, necessarily think uh, much of this, but in the original Greek, it's really something. Uh, so verses 6, uh, let 5, 6, and 7, how about that, in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Okay, hold that phrase in your mind. Go on. Taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. Go on. And being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Yes, now it said he made himself of no reputation at the beginning of verse 7, right? Mm -hmm. The Greek is actually he auton ek 
kenosin, which means he emptied himself. It's the same phrase. It seems to be an allusion to Isaiah that the translators missed or something. So he made himself no reputation. What it literally means there is he emptied himself out. Emptied himself out, took on the form of a servant, was humbled even to the death on the cross. So the death on the cross was part of this emptying out. That was part of his process of glorification. That was separate from the redemption which was dealing with hell, dealing with evil, that ruler of the world. Okay, good. How are we doing? All right, I think we're doing great. Uh, <laughs> let's look then at, go, go to the right from Philippians to Hebrews yet again. I want to go to Hebrews chapter 7. I love me that Hebrews. It's just great. So, um, let's start at verse 21 and make our way down there to 25, something like that. Hebrews 7, 21. Yeah. For they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, this was a reference to things way back in Genesis. Go on. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. A better covenant. Okay. Not no covenant. A better covenant. Okay, go on. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood. It's not that you rotate around or something. He has an unchangeable priesthood. And what does that allow him to do? Therefore, he is also able to save. Able to save. Our key words tonight. He is able to save. Go on. To the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, did that say that he has already saved everybody? No. It just says he is able. He's able to save to the uttermost. That's what he was gaining. All of that, both the redemption, dealing with hell, as he could only deal with it from his human part, but then every time he did a good thing, it made him more divine. Whoops, running out of human here. Yikes, running out of human till he gets to the end and that, that final feeling of abandonment and everything. And then the full glorification and he, and he rises from the tomb with ev everything, skin, toenails, everything. It completely transformed into the divine. Uh, through that glorification, he became the Redeemer and Savior forever, like he can redeem all of us when we go through stuff. So what he gained was the power of salvation. He's the one who takes away the sins of the world. Your dentist is the one who deals with your teeth. The dentist doesn't come bursting into your room in the middle of the night and start yanking teeth without your permission. You need to go to his office or something you need to do. But he's the one who pulls teeth Jesus is the one who takes away sins. He has that power to do that. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. Uh, he has complete power of salvation, and that's what he came to do in this world. And uh, let's go back to it's a rather subtle point, but let's go back to the Acts which you get just before you hit John as you go to the left. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. Now this is the day of Pentecost and all these exciting things happen. And Peter tells everybody, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and all that. And verse 47, Acts 2 verse 47 Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Okay, in the Old King James, again, I kind of prefer this older reading. Uh, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. In other words, the salvation is a different process 
there are people who, who should be saved, who would, would be saved or something, but it's not an instantaneous thing that happens at the, the moment you believe or accept or something like that. Uh, otherwise, what would be the point of things like Jesus saying, you know, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross daily. Why, why not just say, I'm taking up my cross so you don't have to? Why, why would he say, you need to take up your cross? What he means is you need to go through temptations. I went through temptations so as to be able to help you when you're going through it. I'm able to save you. I didn't already do it because you're going to have sins and I'm here to save you from your sin, not somebody else's, not something you inherited from thousands of years, but to save you from your sins. And the Lord has that power and there's something we have to do. All that talk of a covenant makes no sense if there's nothing we have to do. A covenant is by definition something the two parties agree to. I'll do this, you do that. Okay, sounds good. What happened with the first covenant wasn't that there was any problem with the Ten Commandments. It was that people didn't follow them. That's what it says in Jeremiah. That's what it says in Hebrews. And what the Lord wants to do the second time around is write that law on our hearts, put them in our minds, not just sort of something we carry around in our memories, but really install it in us so that we love that law, so that we're living by that, and so the Lord can save us and keep saving us on this long journey, the process of salvation, not just a one-shot thing. Okay, so to briefly summarize that summary, um, <laughs> Jesus was a prophet. When he bore the sins, it didn't mean he carried them and just dumped them out back and they're no longer there. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. Uh, there is still such a thing as sin, and even Christians occasionally manage to commit it. Uh, there is a difference between redemption, which the Lord did during his life, and the glorification, which is what the cross was about. When you think that his death was about dealing with evil, you get all kinds of weird thoughts about God the Father and what you're supposed to do, and the whole thing gets derailed. But if you realize, no, his life, what he was doing was dealing with hell, becoming that Redeemer forever, and the cross was about his glorification, his being emptied out, his being transformed and made divine. So understanding that is really, really vital. Then you understand why he went through temptations. He went through temptations to be able to help us. Why he went through this emptying out, this exodination, uh, because that was part of what he had to do to, to prepare himself for becoming one with the divine. And that that is the sense in which he is able to save to the uttermost. He's still standing there with each one of us, able to provide us all that help for our salvation. It's not something one and done ages ago, and all you have to do is spend 15 minutes saying, I believe, okay, fine, then I must be without evil or something. No, uh, we, there's a lot that we need to do to do our part. We have to take up our cross and not just do it once. We need to do it daily, and we will go through temptations. We will go through our emptying out, but the Lord is able to take us through that process and able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. So I hope that gives you some sense of the nature and purpose of the Lord's first coming, particularly his death on the cross. Thank you, good friends. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You have been given all power in heaven and on earth. We thank you, Lord, for coming down into this world. Thank you for the redemption, the straightening out of the hells, the power that you gained over the forces of evil through your life in this world, casting out demons and performing cures. We thank you also, Lord, for your perfection at the end of your life being absorbed so that you became that outermost face of God accessible to everyone through your Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, so that we can be emptied out. Amen. Amen.